While the last almost six months have been packed, as I think was appropriate, with shows exploring a range of ways in which the COVID-19 pandemic has affected health and healthcare here in Ohio, as you know, we're also in the middle of an election season, with not only the U.S. presidency, but control over Congress and the Ohio State House hanging in the balance. Health and healthcare are, as they say, on the ballot in a big way, and not only because we're in the middle of a pandemic. There are big questions looming about the state of our healthcare system, the cost of healthcare, access, services and supports for those struggling with addiction, and much, much more. So for the next few months, we're going to be bringing you interviews with some of the candidates who are running for city, county, state, and federal office here in Ohio. On today's show, the first of these special episodes, I talk with Joel Newby, Democratic candidate for the 15th Congressional District, my congressional district, in the state of Ohio. This is Prognosis Ohio. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. As always, before turning to my conversation with Joel, I'd like to remind you to please subscribe to Prognosis Ohio wherever you get your podcasts and consider following us on Twitter and other social media. If you have ideas for show themes or interviews, including for this candidate series, please don't hesitate to email us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Also, check out our new website at prognosisohio.com, where you'll find an archive of episodes and show notes, links to social media, show production information, and more. Again, that's at prognosisohio.com. And while you're checking out the new website, consider becoming a Prognosis Ohio patron for just $3 a month. We're hoping to expand the show to include live events, virtual or not, but also to expand the scope and quality of the podcast and radio segments we pull from them to air on WCBE. All of this takes a lot of work packed into weekends between the work week. We assure you that we'll use any resources we bring in to make the show better, to reach further, and to improve the quality. Visit patreon.com slash prognosisohio to chip in $3 a month and become a Prognosis Ohio Patreon. That's patreon.com slash prognosisohio. And thanks. Joel Newby grew up in Atlanta, Ohio, a small town in Pickaway County about an hour south of Columbus. He studied political science, sociology, and classical civilizations at Ohio University. Not a bad school, if I say so myself. And after his undergraduate studies, went on to earn a master's degree in political science. Throughout his time at OU, Joel was involved in a range of formative activities, including some that showed him the ropes of democratic organizing. Leadership positions within those activities culminated with Joel's becoming president of the Graduate Student Senate. Since then, Joel has gone on to earn his JD from Capital University Law School and subsequently worked at the Franklin County Public Defender's Office in the Municipal Court section. More recently, Joel has continued to practice law in Ohio as he explores ways, like the campaign we discuss on this episode, to bring his legal expertise to bear on political change. I also want to mention, as I will before all of these candidate interviews, that I've attempted several times now to contact Representative Steve Stiver's office to have him on the show. They haven't responded, but the invitation stands. If anybody from the congressman's office is listening, you know how to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Seriously, we'd love to hear about Representative Stiver's vision for improving health and health care in Ohio. Okay, now to my conversation with Joel Newby, running for Congress in Ohio's 15th Congressional District. Joel Newby, thanks so much for taking some time to be on the show and talk with us as part of our candidates forum. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So full disclosure, um, you know, I'm going to be doing a lot of these candidate forums and people who listen to the show know kind of where I fall on various issues. So it is no surprise. I live in the 15th congressional district. I have a Joel Newby sign in front of my house. Um, so, you know, uh, being fair um, and I have re- uh 
invited representative Stivers to come on the show. That invitation is, is open. And, um, but I did want to kind of put out there that, um, you know, I, I support your candidacy and, uh, living in the 15th congressional district, it's, it's one that's obviously very important to me. So, you know, the goal today is to just kind of get to know you a little bit better and to understand a little bit of your thinking about healthcare, but ho- hopefully also to draw out a few distinctions with your opponent. I appreciate you saying that. One of my tenets of my campaign is friends and family and neighbors, and that's who I'm running for. And, and so uh, it means a lot to me whenever I hear something like that, because I do feel like it's the people close to me. And, and, you know, even though, you know, I might just be a neighbor with somebody or, and I'm using neighbor as in like, even in another County, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I I feel like I, I feel an immense honor to just be a candidate for this office. I, I, those are the people I'm running for. You're using neighbor in like the Mr. Rogers sense, (laughs) (laughs) kindness and uh, compassion. And uh, absolutely. You got to watch that before you go to elementary school and, you know, lamb chop and Mr. Rogers, of course. Well, I will say it's, it's kind of amazing too. I mean, if, if neighbors and uh, community orientedness is the bread and butter of politics, uh, the 15th Congressional District is gerrymandered beyond belief, just like uh, many districts are in Ohio. And it's a weird district stretching from where I am in Grandview and even further north uh, in, in, in the Columbus area, all the way down to Athens. And how, how many counties are in the 15th? It's 12 counties. Um, of course, that's kind of a misnomer because some of the counties are cut in such a weird way that there's only a thousand people from the county that's a fairly large county and and like so Fayette's one of those of course it's all choppy all the way through Columbus where just driving down 315 you run through my district into Elena's into Joyce's and <laughs> so um it's all over the place but you know I like to say that um when they gerrymandered it they gerrymandered my life into it because I'm from Pickaway went to school in Athens you know and now I live up here in Franklin I have ties throughout the entire district so they just gerrymandered my life into it. No problem. It helps me out, I think. <laughs> That's an interesting way to think about it. So let's start with a kind of framing question, which as I think about these you know, candidate interviews um, and I think about my own life with healthcare, can you just tell me a little bit about you know, what experiences or events kind of have shaped your thinking about the urgency around healthcare? It's a major part of the platform on your website. Um, you talk about it a lot. How do you come to it personally um, through, you know, things that you've been through in your life or that you've heard? Well, I, you know, I grew up in a family that was not well off at all. Um, the, you know, <laughs> I think the only time that I, all the way through until maybe my senior year in high school, the only time that I had anything that was name brand like Nike or anything like that was a hand-me-down from a friend. So, it, you know, I, I've been in situations where money, you know, made it difficult going to the dentist, going to the doctor, going, you know, to get healthcare. And then on top of that, for a while, I lived with my great grandparents and uh, my great grandfather served in World War II, jumped out of airplanes in the Pacific. And, you know, seeing what he had to go through as a vet just to get healthcare, um, you know, and, and then my grandma, who was a nurse and had bad knees and and the way that she ended up passing, if, if we just had a better way of taking care of the 
elderly people in our communities, it, it probably wouldn't have happened. But due to our financial status, like it, it, she probably went a little bit sooner than what she should have. So, you know, it, it really healthcare has shaped a large portion of my life. So I do, I do talk about it and, you know, I kind of leave my life perspective out of it um, more because I want to focus in on the policy. I think that it makes a lot more sense to be able to expose more people to the possibility of preventative care to, um, you know, stay at home resources for elderly members because it makes it more comfortable. They're not exposed to many other diseases. And, you know, I, I look at it as, you know, people like to say that it's a human right, but I, I, you know, it's kind of weird when you hear like human right, it, it sounds like you have to demand that you get that when really it's just being a human, we should care for each other. It shouldn't be a right that's wrote down in a declaration of independence or, or wrote in the constitution or, or law somewhere. It, it's, it's something that we all need and, and it should just be part of our community. You know, but of course, yeah, we we're speaking today um, on the day when I, I spent a lot of the day, I kind of unplugged from some work and from my pandemic era depression to just kind of get inspired with some of the funeral proceedings for uh, Representative John Lewis. And of course, you know, he reminds us that rights were never things that were just kind of there. They, in many cases, had to be fought for and and reasserted. And even when you win them, and I think we've seen this during the Trump years, things that uh, were gained during previous administrations had to be, you know, whether it's, um, you know, voting rights or disability rights or what have you, um, have to be kind of protected as well, right? You don't just win them and then like, you know, start coasting, right? That's just not yeah. how democratic societies proceed. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I would even include like voting in there, you know, it's those human, it, it's, it's those inalienable rights that I just feel wrong having to call them a right. Yeah. We have to call healthcare, right? Yeah. We have to call voting a right. Yes. We have to call civil rights rights, but that's where we're forced to be. And it just feels wrong having to do it because it just I, I guess it's just me in the way that I think it's, yeah. it's that, yeah, of course, it's just being a human means that you deserve X amount of respect. And, and I, you just don't see it when you're trying to struggle for those. And I'm more than happy to join that fight in Congress. I, I will, pardon the expression, but I will throw elbows <laughs> in order to get some of this stuff done because I, I think that it's just so fundamental that even just calling it a right, it, it kind of lowers it. It's just humanity it, it's something that we deserve as a person you know <laughs> it would be yeah. difficult for me to think that of breathing as a right, right. that's the way i look right. at it you know I, in a way we do have to go back to fundamentals in this country and that's been one of the interesting parts of where the democratic party is right now so i want to ask you a little bit about you know you make it clear that the affordable care act was a good first step um, it would be undeniable, very hard to argue that um, the ACA hasn't brought a lot of good to a lot of people, including many, many Ohioans, millions, in fact, um, Medicaid expansion being a huge chunk of that. Uh, at the same time, you kind of gesture towards the future as many Democratic candidates and um, you know members of the, the new class, for example, in, in Congress uh, do by talking about single-payer health care. So I, I wonder if... like. 
how do you balance those things? And I'll just kind of even load the question a little more by saying people have mixed feelings about it in Ohio, even though a lot of people um, you know, support universal uh, single payer, uh, national health care, what, whatever you want to call it. The polling suggests that there's a great deal of anxiety and pre- uh, <laughs> Freudian slip there. I almost called Joe Biden president, but uh, Vice President Biden has taken a middle route um, of fixing and, and, and building on the ACA. And the Democratic Party has also declined to put single payer into its uh, platform. So wh- how, how do you think about being in Ohio in the 15th, the way people think about healthcare, and where you're going to slot into that conversation? Yeah, so I, I do think that the ACA was a great starting point. I, I don't think that we could have ever gone from where we were to a single payer system, um, given the politics of it. It, it just would not have worked and we probably would have actually set ourselves back. But I also think that I want to go to Congress and do something. So uh, when, when I say that we can do both things of, of, you know, strengthening the ACA by, by putting the law deeper into our laws and not to a point where, you know, we have to wait on somebody like John McCain to go out there in the middle of the Senate floor to put a thumb down in order to save it. You know, we shouldn't be able to lose all of Obamacare just by doing that. Um, But at the same time, I do think that it's time to move on to a single payer system in this country. And I I use single payer system instead of Medicare for all because I see, like I said, I grew up with my great grandparents. So I've witnessed so many of the uh, failings of the uh, of the Medicare system that I almost think that it would be easier to build from a different place. But I'm one of those people that if, if, if we're able to improve Medicare, then we're the, I'm more than happy to sign on to that. Um, but my, my thing is, is that I, I, I want to move towards a, a better future with medic, with a single payer system. But if in the meantime, we can strengthen the ACA, I think we can do both at the same time. And I'm more than happy to, you know, participate in that. And I think that Joe Biden keeps calling himself the, the transitional uh, uh, candidate where he wants to be the transition into the new era. And I think that he might be the right person to help us establish the, the context to start setting up a single payer system while strengthening the ACA. He might be the right person at the right time for the kind of goal that we need to go after. And I, I think that it's only recently that single pair has even started to catch on. So public opinion is going to be kind of behind. But I, I honestly think that the, uh, the benefit is we're starting to get people that can actually communicate what single pair means now and actually advocate it in, in a proper way. And we found a way to discuss it because for so long, Democrats got stuck after um, – after FDR left on how to actually talk about these big social programs. And now I'm starting to see a change where that discussion about, you know, what, it, what does it mean to be a person and what you deserve as a person in order to get uh, an understanding of why these policies should be put in place. And anytime that, uh, anytime I get asked about this by a Republican or an independent that says, well, that's socialism. I like to remind them that, According to them and according to their current representative, Steve Stivers, we have the most badass army in the world, and that is completely socialized. 
Um, so let's let's remember here that socialism is not the bad word. Um, and this goes a little bit too far into too far into political philosophy, but people have confused socialism with communism, which right. they're two different things. And and really, the Republicans made it a dirty word socialism because they really don't have a way to fight against a good social program. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. And, you know, I'm a political theorist by training. And, and again, I hope this doesn't bore, bore listeners too much, but I, it's a personal um, pet peeve of mine, which is we're not even talking about democratic socialism. Um, the, 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 probably better framework is social democracy, which is what you have in the Scandinavian countries. I mean, you have huge profitable capitalist enterprises, no, Nokia, you know, for example, coming out of these, com- uh, these countries. So, you know, I mean, in a way we do get caught up in that language. The question I have right now, and I, I guess I want to put to you is, um, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We have, uh, we had a, more than 30% today, we uh, more than a 30% drop in, um, in GDP, um, since COVID started, uh, really hit its peak here in, in, in March. Um, if there isn't a moment for large scale change, if there isn't a moment where you can convince a few people that they should not be afraid of large scale changes, this would be it. I mean, even Joe Biden is getting clearly moved by, just the fact that people are getting a, a taste uh, a little bit more for bigger uh, things to happen because they need to happen during mass unemployment. That's what FDR did, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I wonder, like, Congressman Newby takes um, office uh, in, in January, um, and let's say there's a, a new president in town, too. Um, what does it look like? So I would be working my tail off in D.C., but I think we also need to keep having – Unlike what has previously happened after the election, we constantly need to have conversation with the voters. And that's the first step to actually get voters on board before you go to Washington, D.C. The election is not the end all be all. You don't get a giant glass of political um, motivation and go into Washington, D.C. and get stuff done. I think that's the wrong way of doing it. I think you need to have a conversation that's that goes back to the founding of even capitalism, where Adam Smith says that capitalism should be based in efficiency. And right now, when you look at the market, the inefficiencies are in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in education. It's in these areas that, you know, Democrats get pounded for being socialist. But really, if, if the true capitalist is to remove inefficiencies in the system, then the inefficiencies need removed in order to have a better capitalist system. And that's what FDR was really doing. What he was doing was streamlining capitalism. That's why it exploded. Uh, Why capitalism exploded in America is that when you streamline certain things uh, in capitalism, it just takes off. And let me give you an example. When he developed Social Security and, and they were able to pull that large group of elderly population out of poverty, you automatically spurred more people into the marketplace. You gave them, uh, you gave families who were redirecting cash into an inefficient area in their family back into the market. And, and, and so, you know, I hate to sound so 
apathetic, but that's what it's really about when you get to an economic standpoint. Right now, we're just pouring money into healthcare, but if, if healthcare is the inefficiency, let the government handle that and then let the market handle the stuff that actually matters. And, and, and when I say matters, I mean the efficient workings of the capitalist system. Right. And, and I think that's the discussion that doesn't get had enough, but you also need to be in Congress to have that discussion, I think, um, to have a larger voice to, for people to understand that. Because I think it would take multiple town halls. I think it's definitely longer than an election season. It might even be longer than one term in Congress. But you need to have an ongoing conversation about what does capitalism actually demand of us? And one of those things is to remove the inefficiencies from our system. Uh, my, my greatest example is education. I have a world-class education from Ohio University, but... I have no equity in that, <laughs> that you can't sell my brain. I, I cannot, I, I can probably teach or something, but it's not like a house when I buy a house and then stuff starts like getting on rough waters, all of a sudden I can sell my house and I've actually earned some extra cash in that. That doesn't happen with something like healthcare. It doesn't happen with education. And that's, people always ask like, where's the difference for it? But next thing you know, we're just going to give plasma screen TVs to everybody. Well, no, because that actually can also have equity and your business and so on and so forth. So that's beneficial to the capitalist market. The inefficiencies are when the person that receives the good can, can't benefit in the market any longer. Uh, it just comes down the line and then that's where it ends and it's over. Um, and, and so, you know, to, to really dig into what you're asking is I think we need to have a long conversation. This is going to take a few terms to really get people to understand, you know, the cold war really hurt us when it came to the discussion between socialism and communism. One's a governmental system and one's a description on, it's not even like, socialism versus capitalism see like that's yeah. the that's the thing is that it's either state controlled market or capitalism free market capitalism socialism is the place that's in the middle right, right. <laughs> and that's a long thing <laughs> that's a big area so let's turn to this question you um you're running in a district that representative stivers won pretty handily last time around you're obviously running in a pretty good year for a Democrat because um, you know the president uh, is polling low, and that always bodes well from a political science perspective. Like, you know, the stars are aligned if they're going to be aligned, even in this massively gerrymandered state. But how do you take a district like the 15th and have these nuanced conversations? How do you use a paring knife in a district that has been, you know? <laughs> receiving a sledgehammer uh, of rhetoric for a long time in, around healthcare. Well, you know, I, I think the reason why you're seeing the president with such low numbers is, is not just against the president, but they're starting to see, you know, you're even seeing the congressional ballot is really starting to open up for Democrats as well. So that's clearly that people are seeing that the rhetoric behind what Republicans have been spewing since Barack Obama was first elected is complete nonsense. Um, it's not actually beneficial to anything that they want to accomplish. 
And so a lot of that heavy lifting is already done for me before I even have to step up to the plate. But I, I think a lot of people, you know, we, we want to pride ourselves that we vote on policy, but just as important as policy is, it's that notion that the person that represents us actually understands us. Like we're more willing to send somebody to Congress that will likely vote against us on multiple different areas. But at the end of the day, you have an understanding between your representative and the voter that says, you know, you're, you're going to vote sometimes against me, but at least I get that you understand me. And I think the best example of this is uh, Sharon Brown, who has a 47% approval rating in a year where, you know, individual congressional candidates, you know, even in the Senate are not getting that high um, as a, of an approval rating. And he's in Ohio, like you said, it's, you know, Ohio in general uh, is pretty red, but, you know, he's got a pretty, he's got a better approval rating than Portman does. Mm -hmm. And I, I, and it's because he speaks the language of the people of Ohio. They understand, yeah, uh, Senator Brown's going to vote against me every once in a while, but when it really comes down to it, like he's the guy that you want to fight for you. And, and that's the kind of person that I want to be. And since I have connections throughout the district, I've already been told by plenty of my Republican friends that he went to high school with that they're going to vote for Trump and then vote for me. I've, I've worked on them on the Trump thing, but I don't think I'm winning that fight. But I'll, right. uh, I'll gladly take their vote so that way I can go to Congress and uh, hopefully help out President Biden. Just, I have two more questions. Uh, and the second to last question is, um, what's something that really distinguishes you from, in the healthcare space, from uh, uh, Representative Stivers? What's something that he's done that a Congressman newbie would never do, voted for, supported? I mean, we, are there specifics that people can point to to really see the difference? Yeah. So I... I have three right off the top. I mean, of I'm guessing head. you're thinking about 2017 and multiple attempts to repeal the ACA to start. Yeah, the, the over a hundred votes to repeal the ACA uh, does not help. <laughs> but uh, so that would be definitely number one. Number two is recently uh, how I talked earlier about strengthening the ACA. Uh, Nancy Pelosi actually put a bill on the floor, got it voted out of the House. Of course, it's dying on Mitch McConnell's desk because he's useless. But Steve Stivers voted against it. And, and really what it spoke to is just strengthening the ACA. And you're talking about a district that, you know, outside of Franklin and perhaps Fairfield County, you know, you have some of the poorest uh, counties in the entire state and they need that health care protection. And so he's voted against that. Um, that was just in June. So in the middle of a pandemic, he voted uh, to prevent expanding health care to people and protecting the healthcare of, I believe it's somewhere around 800,000 people. And then I'd also look at, you know, if we're talking about pandemic, he was part of the Republican Congress that, that basically allowed for Trump to remove the, what would you call them, outposts there in China that we had to protect us against the next pandemic, stuff that we learned after SARS and Ebola where Barack Obama pleaded with Steve Stivers when he was in Congress to um, provide uh, money so Barack Obama could set up a, um, 
a a, a a pandemic at task force. I think it was task force. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So he voted completely against that. He he's so, and, and you know, this as well as I do, the possibility of a pandemic is only going to increase because we've expanded capitalist market where we are trading goods and we're trading all to places all over the world. And when you have that many interactions with people, no matter where they're from, that increases the opportunity of some sort of disease transmission that gets created and evolves. And, and it's just basic biology at that point. If you give it X amount of opportunities, eventually something's going to happen. So we need to be prepared for the next pandemic. And time and time again, people, people like Steve Stivers in Congress have denied science and we are suffering the consequences of that denial of science. It's interesting. In, in science, I was, I was saying this to some students the other day who were concerned about some of the ways in which science is being used in our public discussions around healthcare, and also, of course, with the president, with hydroxychloroquine <laughs> and these kinds of things that have been in the news. Um, they're really disconcerting. But And I reminded them, though, that a big report came out during the Bush administration, a similar kind. I mean, in a way... President Bush has been reconstructed as like if we could only have that right now, yeah. Um, you know, uh, but I'm I'm no Bush sentimentalist um, in full disclosure, and I and I resist that move, of course. Um, but still, this discussion about science has been going on for a long time, and people understand why healthcare should be driven by science at a minimum. Um, I wonder if we could just um, wrap up on on just a general question and. Um, Say hi to your dog, by the way. It's we we love. Yeah, I'm sorry. Love, no, we love dogs on the podcast. <laughs> I I apologize. She's a she's there's a neighbor that's moving in, so she's got a brand new doggy friend next door, and so she's been going crazy since they've been moving in. So, well, you know, social distancing is tough for everybody, right? Yeah. So let, let's just um, you know, I, I wonder what. We, we've talked a little bit on uh, from the high level about healthcare, you know, access and sort of like what kind of system we want. What kind of things do you hear about when you talk with people during your campaign? And let me just put the elephant in the room out there, which is this is a weird campaign you are running. I mean, like not you personally, but you're running a your first campaign during a um, uh, a pandemic uh, where you can't go shake hands and, you know, kiss babies and things like that. So like, I, I wonder, A, what kind of stories are you hearing? And B, how is the pandemic itself shaping the sort of context of those stories? Is it is it like all coming together because people are seeing the critical importance of health policy? Or is it just like two separate things like pandemic and then the issues that people care about? It's really a person-to-person -person kind of deal. I, I would say that it's nearly 50-50, to be honest with you. And I think what really – now, don't get me wrong. I'm glad that we're providing tests for free, and you know some of these treatments are going to be for free, but we, there's also been reports that people are having to pay for it. But for the most part, the tests are free. And so the people that are getting tested are coming back, oh, I didn't have to pay anything, so – like the the discussion around you know healthcare and healthcare costs is not really being um, part of that discussion, but to a certain degree, a lot more people are talking about them because 
We're talking about how the pandemic is affecting minority communities the most, uh, how um, the cost of, of, of what it actually takes on your mental health. And, and that's a huge part of this entire discussion. And I think that people are starting to realize that, you know, simple things like having asthma, you know, that adds to your risk. And, and you know, we, we all know somebody that has asthma where it's no big deal to them on a daily basis, but all of a sudden it is the biggest deal because it puts them in a category that is makes this pandemic potentially fatal for them, even more so than what it would be for, I believe I'm relatively healthy, somebody like me then. You know, so it's one of those things where uh, for the people, it's really coming home and it's really hitting pretty hard. And for other people, I think that it's one of those things where they're able to keep it in two different boxes. And, and part of me wants to also say that maybe that's a mental health benefit for them where they're able to keep it in two, two different boxes and they, they are keeping politics separate right now or, or the healthcare debate separate in order to just get through. And, and I get it. I am sympathetic to every single way that we can come at this. I, right. I think people are that, doing whatever they can to just get up in the morning and go through another day of yeah. isolation. And, yeah. 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 No, I, I am all for it, whatever it takes. So I, you know, I, I try to treat, if you go to my website, joelnewby.com up in the top, it says contact Joel. I've gotten people to respond all kinds of different stuff through there. And, you know, you, you, even just being a sounding board for some people just so they don't feel like they're alone has been what I believe is beneficial. So it's 50, 50, but at the same time, I'm more than happy to change my mind depending on who I need to talk to. Right. Right. Sure. Sure. And, and these are complex things that, you know, I mean, part, part of running a campaign, I'm, um, I imagine I've never run one uh, is just the process of connecting with people and kind of, learning about them. I would think that would be the coolest part, which is you have your experience, but then you realize all of a sudden that, I mean, you hear about people's employment lives or their, their, uh, their family histories or where they came from. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it, it seems like there are a lot of people from in the 15th that I've met who are from here, but there are a lot of people from all over the place too, who bring oh, yeah. perspective. No, it's, so. it's definitely one of those things where I'll be in a room and uh, well, back in the back in the early days of the primary, I would be in a room and I would listen to all these amazing stories, and then I completely forget that I got to be the person talking because people need to like me based on on uh, what I'm saying. Uh, so that that was always like a nice little reminder. Thank God I had somebody with me. Sometimes I was like, okay, you need to go talk to this big group of people now. You can't just talk to this one amazing story, <laughs> right? Well, this is what you know, like down the road, you know, campaign staff and uh, st staffers in Congress are for, are to remind you that you're supposed to do things um, that aren't just about connecting because, <laughs> and, th and those are the parts that are like the famously terrible parts of, let's say, running a campaign, right? Like raising money. Like you can't just have nice chats and get to know people. You got to make the ask at some point. Talk about a terrible time as a candidate to raise money because yeah. the last thing you want to do to people in this time period is to ask anybody for money. And, and so we've tried to, you know, avoid that. Um, 
as much as possible. And I'm grateful to have people in the district that realize the importance of this race and, and the fact that it's winnable that will just contribute without me having to make that ask. And I am very, very happy for that because I, it, it's based, like you said, this is my first campaign. Um, I've managed a few, I've been part of a bunch, but this is out of this world. <laughs> this is crazy. Joel Newby running in the 15th congressional district in Ohio, uh, to echo what Stephen Colbert used to say back in the day that the fight in 15th, you know, uh, wish you luck and, um, you know, good health with your, your campaign. And, uh, we'll certainly be following what you'll be up to, um, as, as it marches on towards November. So thanks for taking some time to chat with me. I appreciate you having me on there. Thank you. Many thanks to Joel Newby for joining me on the show. You can read more about Joel and his campaign at joelnewby.com. You can find show notes for this episode at WCBE's webpage at wcbe.org under the podcast experience tab. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Dan Skinner and Mark France. Please take a minute to subscribe to Prognosis Ohio, follow us on Twitter at, at @prognosisohio, friend us on Facebook, etc., etc., and check out our new website at prognosisohio.com. As always, we encourage you to reach out with your suggestions and your feedback, especially if you have ideas for candidates we should be interviewing in this current series. Thanks so much for listening and be well.